It's four o'clock, the second Tuesday of the month on WERU FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. It's time for Boat Talk, WERU's boating show. Temporarily not a call-in show, but we have an idea about that. I'll explain later. First, we go back to Leroy Weed. We had a good talk with Leroy on the February show until we ran out of time. So here's the remaining of our talk, starting with people who keep undersized lobsters. They catch them all the time. This last year, one of the boys got a little bit greedy, brought in 40 or 50. Guess what? He's not fishing now for three years. So that was an expensive day. Yeah. His license for three years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't doesn't pay that. I figure if I if I can't catch enough to make a living, I'm doing something wrong, or there's something wrong with the traps. So uh, go back and re-examine what you're doing, where you're fishing, and if that's not working, try something else, and eventually you'll get it right. Leroy, one of my favorite things on the planet is sunrise at sea. Um, What's what's been your least favorite thing about fishing? The least favorite? Anything? Yeah. I think it's getting in one of them big snarls. When you get like one of these uh, big boats go through and there's 40 or 50 different colored buoys all in one group. Huh. And you've got traps in there. You're going to be there all day trying to get them traps out. Huh? You, no, it, I hadn't thought of seeing that. Yeah, yeah. You, there's no way you can lift fifty of them, and if you got five boats there, there's still no way you're going to lift fifty of them. And there's some who's, places who's, where the traps are some thick. Yeah, who line gets cut off? So that's that's the one of the worst things that can happen to you is you get one of them big snails, and a lot of that happens. If you try to fish the channels, especially in around these islands where the channels are marked with the with the uh, navigation buoys, yep. You you want if you want to lose the trap, put it in the channel. Fishing right in the middle of the road, you will lose it. You've left your gear right in the middle of the road, is what I say. Yep, just put the whole right in the middle of the road. You lose it. it. But I I just steer clear of it. I. It ain't worth it. The one love, a, a new trap now is about 110 to $130, depending on how big it is and how you got it set up. That's just a trap. Then you got to buy the rope, the float, the buoy, and go from there. So you're going to have, if it's a $120 trap, you're going to have $135 in that trap. Now, I don't fish singles because they're too hard to get back. I always fish two on line. I fish pairs. And uh, if they run over your buoy and you float, you can take your grappling. You've got it marked on your plot, and you drag that grappling back and forth a couple of times, and chances are you'll get them while the traps are tied together. And I lost 10 one year, and I got nine of them back. 
So mm. I, uh, I was quite happy with that. And the only thing is that where you've got it marked, you don't know how far they dragged it before they cut it loose. So it could be half a mile from where you're pulling your dra you're grappling around, you know. So if you get nine out of ten back, you're doing all right. And nowadays, a lot of boats, including a lot of yachts, come with line cutters right on the propeller. Yeah, right on the shaft. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as I say, I've been uh, probably done about three hundred boat deliveries in my time. Okay, the only place we don't run at night is inshore of the coast of Maine. Yeah. Reason being, we dodge traps in the day. If we can't see them at night and dodge them, we're taking chances we don't want to take. So the yeah. only place I've ever been boating, we don't run at night, and it's because of them lobster buoys, you know? Yeah. Um, and places, Muscungus Bay, boy, you joke you could walk on them down there, you know? <laughs> yeah. So thick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's where the state law comes in and says you can set the trap anywhere. Take 50 and go to Matinicus. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> you see that the fishermen's laws are a lot different than the state. <laughs> Matinicus, for other people who don't know, it's an offshore island, the furthest one out, uh, small kind of feisty population. And like I say, uh, strangers are strangers. So, yeah. 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 We got around to the future of lobstering. Well, it, it gives you a little... Uh, in-depth knowledge deeper than just seeing traps piled by the houses and the buoys piled up on the on the grass and and uh gee he's got a big gang of traps well yeah okay most everybody does to make a good living remember you gotta you got to pay two men in the back and if they if they're just going for fifty dollars a day they're not going to stay there they can't a lot of these guys drive a long ways from, to get down here in the morning. We got Sturman coming from Hancock, Sullivan, Bucksport, Belfast. Uh, I mean, they come from all over. And, you know, that's an hour drive for them or more down here in the morning and back. And they, they bring their lunch, of course. And, uh, you know, they can't, they can't do that if they got a family for $50 a day. It isn't, isn't feasible for them. So what I did in, the, in my late years when I fished, I'd give the guys an ultimatum. I said, here's the deal. I will give you $100 a day guaranteed. Or you can take the 15% share after expenses. It's your choice. And at the end of the week, if you want $100 a day, I will write you a check for $600 for that week. And it'll be there every week that we work, regardless. So you have that choice. Do you, is there days that you could make $150? Absolutely. But once you make the choice, that's the choice. That's the way it goes. So a lot of them take the $100 a day, especially in the spring when there's a lot of work and not much going. Getting 800 traps in the water is, is a big job, a big job. You got to put them on a truck or a trailer, bring them down here to the shore, offload them on the boat, go get bait, 
and there's no money involved because you haven't caught anything. You're just putting the traps out. And that's part of the job. How many how many traps will your will your boat haul at one time? How many traps do what? On the boat. How many boat do I load. put on? My boat was thirty two foot and I could I could put seventy on there. Wow. Yeah, they're up quite high. So that's but, at least ten trips then to get them all out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if it's choppy, you might not take the seventy, you may just take forty. Right. Put them in the platform and go with them. But what I used to do is is uh, when I was setting out, once I had them out there for three, four, five days, and I'm still bringing traps down, then I would set these ones off and go haul some of the ones that I brought first. Mm-hmm. Keep them baited. The yeah. secret of lobster is keeping your trap baited. If there's no bait, you're <laughs> not going to catch nothing. All right. Leroy, have you seen the video, uh, the lobster trap video? I think it was the University of Maine put a video camera on a lobster trap, dumped it overboard. What what happens, you know? Yep. You can watch that. It's quite surprising, apparently. Yeah. Um, we got, we got what they found the was... On the virtual uh, virtual goggles that shows the lobsters in the traps, yeah. might be the same film. What surprised me was that the trap hits the bottom. It's got fresh bait in it. Lobsters are, are, if they're there, they're attracted to it immediately and will fight over the bait sometimes. Yeah. They can enter and exit the trap. Yeah. And a high volume of exits. Yeah. Um, so one of these videos, I forget, um, wasn't how many different lobsters, but how many lobsters, uh, the same approach the trap several times, maybe. Um, so you've got... Uh, Dozens and dozens of approaches that I left the trap in for 24 hours. There were uh, literally dozens and dozens of trap next day. There's two shorts and a keeper. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's been so much activity in that trap. Yep. If they can leave. Where the small funnels is uh, heads in the front of the trap. Yep. A lot of the guys put their bait bag right there in the middle between those two entrance heads. And uh, I never did. I used to put mine down on the bottom, back away from there, so that they had to come in and get under the ring of those small heads. And that kind of helps them lose their way back out. But if you put that bait bag right right between the heads, they just lay on the head and eat. When they get the belly full, leave. So that's catch and release. Don't pay very well. <laughs> You're uh, feeding those fish, that herring. That's yeah. aquaculture. You're feeding yeah. them. Yeah. Leroy, if we had a trap they could not get out of, do you think we'd still have a sustainable fishery? If I we caught so. every lobster went in? I think so. The, the boys told me last year there was tons and tons and tons of shorts, the little guys. That's good. And that's a good sign. Yeah. That's a good sign. When you see them from four inches long to the just won't quite make the measure, when they molt or shed, they will go the measure. And if you didn't catch them this year, they'll be back next year, and the crop looks good. And like I say, about seven years to grow a lobster big enough to keep her. Yeah. I, I, I think they... I think the regulations are working on what they do. 
And if you make some good stiff fines for bringing in the little guys and the oversized and the egg-bearing lobsters, those are your breeders. They, the first egg-bearing lobster law went into effect in 1917. That's how long that law has been in effect. My Over 100 years. Yeah. And I think that's why Maine still has a sustainable fishery is because of those uh, female lobsters that got marked and, and uh, put back. And the big bulls, the big oversize, I mean, you know, when a farmer wants to breed his stock, he finds the biggest, healthiest, strongest animal that he's got to breed the other animals. So I think the concept is the same by using the big bulls for breeding stock. And that seems to work. Yeah. That seems to work. 30 years ago, there were lobster traps all the way all the way from here to Long Island Sound. You can still see a lobster trap in Long Island Sound, the odd one, Rhode Island Sound, Buzzards Bay, but they're gone, you know? Yeah. They were so thick years ago, they're gone. My, my father-in-law, that's where my father-in-law came from, was East Hampton, New York. Yeah. And him and I fished off of Montauk. Yeah. Back in the early 60s. And uh, we had 80, they were wooden pots at, at that time. We had 80 pots and we'd have eight, 900 pounds of lobsters. But some of them lobsters weighed 10, 12 pounds. Mm. You know? Mm. And uh, I don't think today you could catch a lobster on, on the ocean side of, of uh, Long Island I don't know if there is any there. They they used to take the egg ones and scrub the eggs off. I mean, you take four or five fishermen scrubbing 500 pounds of egg lobsters off a day. What are you doing? You're, you're killing yourself, you know, cutting your own throat. So there's uh, less fish there. The water is warmer. But 30 years ago, boy, it was it was trash in the yeah. water all the time. Along That's gone for on the good side. So. Yeah. I look at it this way, you know, there's a line right here, but right between your eyes. It's imaginary, of course. But one side of that line is greed. And the other side of that line is common sense. And if you have spent the investment to buy a boat and traps, you really want to establish this line in your brain. I will take what I get each day, be thankful for it, and make it work. Do I drive a Cadillac? No. Do I want a Cadillac? No. No, don't need one. But I'll use common sense, and I'll use this little small truck I got. And it and it serves me well. So that's kind of my philosophy in, in this fishery. And I think it pertains to all the fisheries. Uh, or anything else. I mean, if you're growing tomato plants on your porch and you go out and pick all the tomatoes off today, what are you going to have tomorrow? You know, you go to the hen house and you get an egg. You come in and cook your breakfast. Then you go out in the mall and cut chicken's head off. Where are you going to get your egg the next day? <laughs> Just common sense, you know? Mm. So, anyway, 
Is we learning as a big question nowadays, Leroy, and man, common sense is, uh, you know, uh, glad you got some and let's make some more. Who's the thought? Yep. That's Leroy Weed. You can see him on YouTube. Look for Ask Leroy. Thanks to the Center for Maine Coastal Fisheries for sponsoring Leroy and making this connection. We're going to have a discussion of the proposed NOAA rules to try to protect whales. But first, both Mike and I miss being able to do Boat Talk Live, so we're going to try to do the next best thing, a Zoom Boat Talk. One week from now, next Tuesday, April 20th at 4 p.m., the feedback loop will be open to everyone who pre-registers by emailing boattalk at gmail.com to get into that Zoom meeting. We can talk about any sort of boating subject, issues we talked about on previous boat talks, uh, suggestions for future boat talks, requests for previous guests to come back, Mike's favorite recipes for rough seas, boatyard news, boat repair questions, whatever. We have no agenda, just want to connect with the listeners again. Excerpts from the Zoom meeting will be used on the next Boat Talk. Email boattalk at gmail.com to sign up for the Zoom meeting. It'll probably be months before Boat Talk will be able to come back to the WERU studios with guests. So this is the best we can do until then. And we hope you will join us and other Boat Talk listeners. Remember just to pre-register by emailing boattalk at gmail.com. We're looking forward to seeing you on the Boat Talk Zoom meeting next Tuesday, April 20th, 4 p.m. you got to pre-register, though, by emailing boattalk at gmail.com. Hope to see you there. Next on Boat Talk, we talk with Zachary Cliver of Bar Harbor and Blue Seas Strategies and Jack Merrill, a Cranberry Isle fisherman, about a subject that has been in the news quite a bit lately, whale protection. We started by discussing a letter sent to President Biden signed by all four of Maine's congressional representatives on February 24th of this year. The letter makes some points that indicate that Maine fishermen are not a threat to whales. On March 8, Zach and eight other people involved with whale protection sent a letter to the president refuting several of the allegations made in the original letter. Zach comments first. Yes, well, the, the main congr- congressional delegation sent a letter to President Biden um, about the right whale issue and a lot of concerns they have around the rule and the, and the biological opinion, which is an important piece of the rule um, that's part of the Endangered Species Act that, that needs um, to be addressed. 
so there was a lot of there's a lot of concern among the main fishing industry and delegation given that the projection is to get to zero risk and how would you how would you have a fishery with zero risk right so um, I think it's a it's a legitimate concern but I think um, one of the one of the important things to keep in mind with that is that if you um, did nothing with the fishery you the the, the NOAA projects that that the, the, the species would still continue in decline. But what's important here is that um, that is if nothing else is done, if, if nothing is done to affect ship strikes or Canada does, does nothing or, not, or any of the kind of mitigation um, alternatives that they propose go into effect, right? So get, if all those things happen, there could be a change that could um, change the 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 amount of right whales, uh, the 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 level of of risk, right? Um, so this group that I'm part of, we we wrote a letter responding to that, and I I guess I would just say that you know it was kind of polarizing it, right now. Those especially those two letters. I mean, it's we're we're presenting two very different um, positions, um, but I think that. Um, there, that uh, there's a lot of opportunity for things to, to, to work on together, you know, and that's what I'm excited about is that um, I know things are, are uh, difficult right now in trying to figure this, figure our way through this. But um, I do, I am very optimistic that we can find um, opportunities to work together and there is a lot of common ground between Jack and I. We, we've had some really wonderful conversations. I, I respect him tremendously. He's someone I've seen fishing on the ocean for a long time and uh, have been in contact with for a long time. And uh, um, so that's a good thing. If we can, if we can um, have conver a conversation that's agreeable and, and talk about things that we, we do think we can work on together, so. Next is Fisherman Jack Merrill. I think the letter itself is, is full of mis, misconceptions. And I'll just point out two. Um, one, uh, they talk about a red marker being somehow significant as, as uh, the way you read the letter, it, it applies to main fisheries. Well, a red marker has been, is throughout New England, all the way through the Cape. Um, it's not main fishing gear necessarily. So if a red marker was found on a whale, it, the probability is that it's coming from Cape Cod where, um, and Massachusetts, because that's where the whales congregate and in main waters they're traveling through. So, um, that's one misconception in there. Um, another one is that 99% of gear entanglements are not, um, are not recognized or not, um, they don't know where they came from. Um, the last four years they've, they have, NOAA has identified 36% of the entanglements from coming from Canada and 0% from Maine. Um, so, and so there still is 64% unidentified and that's, you know, that's just the way it is, the way the science is right now. Um, and the science can be improved and that's what I'm, I want to focus on. I want, and, I, and Zach, I, you know, Zach and I agree on 
a lot of things. Um, and, and one of the most important things is that we need to know where these whales are. We need to find out where they are. And there are some great ways right now available, the technologies available that we can do way better than we've done in the past. Um, as a fisherman, it's a bit of a risk because they may be all over the Gulf of Maine, but I wanna know where they are. And, and my instincts tell me that the way that the things have gone recently, that these whales are traveling outside for the most part of our waters. They're traveling through the very outside of our waters. They're not, um, and, and so the, what they call the probability of risk because we have a lot of lines is not a probability, it's a possibility. So what is the best approach to protect whales? Here's Zach again. Yes, you know, um, there's, there's three things that, that uh, you could consider, I think, in risk um, around the right whale issue. One is, where are the right whales? Secondly, where's the gear? And then the third piece is what type of gear, right? How, how, how thick is the line? How severe, you know, what's the severity risk? And um, it may be that a lot of the main gear isn't the most severe gear out there. We know that the snow crab gear is very heavy and is very lethal. In fact, this, this whale that, that um, we were all following, I think, or many of us who yep. have been following this issue in Cottontail, who they tried to rescue, they put a tag and they tracked the whale across the Gulf of Maine. He, he was here in October and then showed up off of Florida a few months ago and, and sadly, um, uh, no one could get to him and, and, and he died. He was severely emaciated, the, you know, died of the entanglement. And they, Noah just announced yesterday that they believe that was Canadian snow crab gear. And, you know, the offshore gear is also probably heavier and more lethal. So um, this is what we need to know. And I completely agree with Jack about trying to get a better um, sense, especially for Maine, you know, because this industry is so important to us and the lobster industry is such an important um, part of our economy, our life and our cultural heritage um, that we need, we need to know where, you know, where the whales are and where the gear is. So um, we, we need to um, invest in more survey effort you know, it, there, there's there's things that uh, that are in the works that that are going to happen and are unfolding right now. But the more information we have in the next five or ten years, the better we're going to be. And if you don't have good information, then things devolve. You know, it just becomes a political uh, game, and 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 we're not do we're not making good decisions. So um, I was excited to see that. Um, the, the, some of the main delegation are pushing for a $2 million um, uh, addition to the appropriations budget for 2022 to do more um, survey work uh, specifically in the Gulf of Maine and off the coast of Maine um, to determine where whales are. Where do whales go? I think the primary reason that they move is their food source. Right. And that's what that's what we've seen over the last 10 years. And Zach can comment on this. Um, you know, they have they had a problem finding food for a number of years and they they stopped producing. 
And they, when they found the food, unfortunately, they found it in, in an area of Canada where there was a lot of boat traffic. There was a fishery that was in no way safe for them. And it, it caused a, a lot of damage. It was catastrophic, really. But that will continue to be a problem. And the overriding factor to me for food, for, uh, you know, why is the food source moving? It's global warming and pollution. Those are the, those are the two things that are affecting the ocean and, and going to affect this population more than anything else. Because so you look at all the other marine species out there, they're all being affected by, by these two things. Um, pollution and, and, and water warming and, and things changing. So that, those are the things that we need to be looking at in the future. That's where we have, that's what we have to get a handle on. So it seems pretty obvious that careful tracking of the whales is very important, but how do we do that? I've been pushing for the idea of drones which uh, my son, who's an engineer at the University of Maine, has kind of turned me on to the, to the, the idea of it. But drones use uh, artificial intelligence, AI, um, and camera work. Um, it, I've been told that the military has drones that can see thousands of miles across the ocean, that can see any time a Russian sub moves, they know it. Um, and they can this is underwater technology they can they can see down to the bottom with no problem at all some of these computers um and i i think it's important or or it's interesting to note that noaa actually started this year uh, a program with uh mikey might be interested in this they call it a sail drone which is a, an unmanned sailboat which um, they counted the Pollock in Alaska this year with it. Mm. And the technologies there, Canada just invested in a large drone that they're going to use to survey their whale populations. And my suggestion would be to the United States, if we can rent this thing, if it's, you know, if it, why not use it across the border um, or develop our own? Apparently there's going to be federal money coming Let's use it to find out where these animals are. For those listening who don't know what trawling up means, it simply means attaching more traps to a single line to the surface. Again, getting back to the the proposal that's out there by NOAA, or not a proposal, it's, it's a demand of the fishermen to change the way they're fishing to... Um, you know, the, the intent is to protect whales, um, to have less uh, lines to the surface. Um, and so one of the reasons or one of the things that they're proposing to do is to have us all trawl up. So we'll have we'll have the same amount of traps, but we'll have a lot less uh, surface lines. And I, I feel um, and I think. Zach feels the same way, especially reading the reading some of the scientific information that's come out really more in the last five years, I would say, is that heavier lines and more traps on a line is probably not a good thing 
for a whale. And, uh, you know, I've felt that all along. I haven't understood why they're going in that direction, but I'll let Zach comment on that. No, I'm sorry. Not a good thing for a fisherman either and be so extra heavy to deal with. No, I mean, we moved to, to triples to fives a few years ago, the first time we trawled up and, uh, I don't mind fishing fives. They're very efficient. You know, they're, they, I can haul them quicker than I can haul triples. But if I get tangled up with somebody to untangle that five on my five, um, it is life-threatening, limb-threatening, whatever you want to call it. Um, you have to be there to understand the weight and the, you know, and you're not, it's not like you're sitting in your living room when you're hauling traps, you're rocking and rolling. It's, it's dangerous. I'll just leave it at that. I'd like to go back to Canada for a minute. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they have proposed um, this summer uh, closing whole areas if, if whales do show up there. Um, I'm not sure. I'm curious if that would be a possibility down here, how well that would go over. We've had that before, Alan. Um, it's called what we call dynamic management. Um, we had that for quite a few years um, in place. Um, and and it, it is, yeah, it's been in place before, but the, the, the problems with it are, are twofold. One, is that it's it's hard to move gear in a hurry. I found that a lot of times the whales had already moved through the area before the gear, you know, before they even knew they were there and, and they could tell people to move the gear. Um, I don't think it's a terrible concept, um, but it just didn't work practically. Uh, you know, if it's a, depending on the time of year, if it was in the winter, like I just got out today for the first time in two weeks. Um, you can't just jump out and move a lot of gear in a hurry. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult uh, from a practical standpoint. So um, I, I'm not dismissing it altogether, but and I'd love to hear more discussion on that possibility. But, I think that comes back around to the uh, knowing where they are problem so mm -hmm. that if you knew where they are or knew where they were headed, then that could probably be work a little better. But um, how do you track whales? Go back to your, uh, your son-in-law who was an engineer student. Um, oh, my son. Yeah, son. Okay. Um, and drones. I, I was curious, and Zach, you may know about this too, if you could use a drone to uh, tag a whale, to, to drop some sort of a, a – adhesive tag onto a whale that would be uh, last for a few weeks at least anyway. Yeah, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, interest in that and a lot of work done. There, of course, there, there have been satellite tags that have been used for a long time effectively with whales, but the, the tag is a deep tissue tag and it's fired into the whale and it, go, it penetrates pretty deeply into the blubber 
and then it catches. It has it has barbs on the end, and it, it catches, and it uh, and it it, it uh, it's quite significant. It stands up pretty high. Um, that's that's what has been used, but um, there was a case where a right whale was tagged, and they believed that it died from the tag. Um, there yeah. has been concern about this deep tissue tag with all the whale species, and sci the scientists that are the expert in the, in that, along with general whale scientists, have been having um, workshops and conferences and publishing papers trying to get at the heart of that. They've noticed that in areas where tags have been placed that sometimes there's wounds that form. And what happens is the tag becomes like a vector. It, it goes into the, into the blubber. And then if, it, if there's any movement, it rotates and creates a hole where bacteria can go in and it could be harmful. So NOAA, you know, has been opposed to that kind of tagging. Um, there are some other interesting designs of tags. Um, there's a limpet tag that's being used in the fins of like orca and dolphins to track them. Um, the science is, is evolving, but when they recently tried it on right whales, they actually got a permit to use some of those tags. Uh, a friend of mine who, who is one of the experts in this and... Um, they they had one tag that stayed with the whale for about 50 days so that was that was successful but a couple that there were a couple that didn't and i guess the issue is that right whales do um, rub against each other and they 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 um they it's very hard to get a tag that will attach that will last a long time you know if it's if it protrudes out at all the whale seems to find a way to to get rid of it um quickly so it, it, but I, I do think um, that we should be putting more money into, you know, there should be more um, funding for that um, technology, technological development. Um, I actually have an idea myself <laughs> for, for a potential tag I've thought of. Um, and uh, I've talked to a few scientists and they haven't, uh, they haven't uh, said I'm crazy yet. I also think that we need a lot more technology developed to, to deal with the ship strike issue, to oh, mitigate yeah. ship strikes. There's a, there's a, what we're finding is with that issue that, you know, certainly reducing the speed of the ships is important, but there, there could be a lot of other technologies that you could use together, right? And it's a whole host of technologies together. So satellites to locate whales, infrared on the bow of ships, to spot the blows uh, up to a mile ahead or even multiple miles if the conditions are right, um, which could be very useful. Um, maybe a sensor on the bow of the ship to warn them of something in the water out ahead. Um, uh, gliders, as you mentioned, the slocum gliders to, to and acoustics, uh, and then oceanography, right? Layering what we, we the, Scientists have been pretty good at being able to show where the productive um, ocean waters are. That's where the whales often go, right? So if you if you get enough information about their location and you can you can use satellites to show where the the upwelling is happening, um, that can be very you know quite real time. So it's all those things together, like a, it's a modality of technologies all working together that could be very helpful. In, in that issue, but we need, we need um, a greater investment 
in in that you know zach you say you have a crazy idea i'll give you mine we uh stencil barcodes on their outside using natural inks okay and uh, then we can just scan them at a distance even with satellites you know exterior tattoo sort of thing kind of a henna tattoo big barcode I've, I've got an unstable <laughs> internet here, so I'm I'm hearing half of what you guys are saying, but um, <laughs> ain't you lucky? Kind of getting the gist of it, but you know, I just want to ask a you know a rhetorical question: If you have a 200 foot boat and it slows down from 20 knots to 10 knots, I I guess the the odds of it striking something might somehow be lessened but is the effect of it hitting something going to be any different oh no not much no. we are zooming a boat talk this evening and talking about uh you know inshore uh, offshore gulf of maine uh, fisheries and water uh, issues here trying to uh, establish commonalities with the scientists ecologists uh, zach the uh, practical uh, fisherman jack the writer, journalist, John, and two fish, uh, two uh, boat builders, Mike and Alan here. We haven't uh, spoken of another uh, item, which is real big current and uh, national news and, you know, happening locally too, um, offshore wind. You boys also have common attitude on that subject, I believe. I'll let Zach go first. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just wore myself out. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about the wind. Now, I'm my number one political issue is climate change. It's my, you know, I, I have seen the th the changes I have seen in the Gulf of Maine, and what I what I have. I'm constantly trying to learn everything I can about whales and nature to share it with other people. That's been a big part of my joy in life, right? Um, in fact, um, uh, my, my business partner and I held a, a, a um, all-day workshop at the World Marine Mammal Conference in Barcelona in December of 2019. And the, the workshop was on the effects of climate change on marine mammals. And we had 13 scientists from all over the world um, speak. We had 70 people, uh, 70 scientists attend from 20, uh, 22 countries and four territories. And, and from the Arctic to Antarctica, the climate is having an enormous impact on the oceans. And, and whales are a, 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 a perfect example showing, illustrating that. Right, the whales in the temperate zones around the north and southern hemisphere are moving into the polar zones. The marine heat waves that we're seeing in Australia and the Pacific are having enormous impacts on dolphins and whales of all kinds. Um, so, um, I, I'm I'm a proponent of alternative energy. It's it's incredibly important to me. Yet. Um, I've been, I've been disappointed with the state of Maine for a long time in that they didn't reach out to everyone on the coast and try to figure out what, what resources are out there. Where is the fishing? Where are the whales? Where are the seabirds? And then 
um, try to understand um, that the, 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 the uh, also help explain to all of us that, that are already using the ocean and believe in, um, in having a, an environment where whales and seabirds and wildlife thrive along with fishing, what will the impact be on fishing? What will the impact be on whales? I, I don't think they've done any, they made any effort to that. We don't, we don't know where, we're, you know, this is not the way you make good decisions. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you hold hearings and get people to come and talk and figure this out and try to figure it out together, but to just to just dump this on us and without, you know, um, a lot of uh, explanation. It's the same way I feel about the TRT and NOAA process with right whales. I think that there was a huge part of, of um, reaching out to the fishing community, meeting with them, explaining what is known and trying to work with them to solve it. And that doesn't happen at a three-day meeting that happens twice a year where, where you send three or four people to try to, you know, to do, I mean, that, this is a bigger investment that needs to, to happen. We, we need to make good decisions. And so I guess that's my, my, biggest, my biggest qualm is I just don't, I don't know what the impact will be. And I don't, why aren't they sharing? There's a lot of wind power all around the world. Why aren't we, why aren't we being informed about this? You know, <laughs> I was uh, very surprised reading up on it today to find out how much there is of it in the world. And if you zoom out, it's the common thing. Um, President Biden just said he wants to double America wind power in 10 years. And uh, I read a thing that said by 2040, just offshore wind power could supply more than 10 times the power needs of the planet the planet. And it turns out that one of the keys to offshore power, wind power, is the turbines can be so much larger than on land. And uh, they outproduce the land turbines by a factor of, uh, you know, uh, more than a few, uh, you know, couple. And that makes all the difference. Um, uh, Mike? On the other hand, as a boat person, I think it's insane to operate anything out on the water you can do on land. It makes everything harder. Come on. Um but there are a lot of advantages. It's the common thing. And, uh, you know, did you see in the news, uh, Bagger Daily News last Sunday? I'm ready to. Last Thursday. Fishermen deny tactics against survey vessel. There's a, uh, a uh, windmill going to go off of Monhegan this summer. And they have sent an ocean survey vehicle uh, vessel that tows robots, wants mm -hmm. to map. The line that the cable will come ashore, I believe it's like 20-something miles from Monhegan into Friendship area, I guess. They asked the boys. Yeah, they asked the boys to remove their trap from a line, uh, you know, so wide and that long. And a lot of the boys didn't do it. Part of them saying, why should I help you survey something that's going to put me out of business, you know? And uh, so the Marine uh, Patrol has been contacted. There are some... Uh, allegations of uh you know you're towing my traps i uh, know i'm not and uh, you know i don't want to be in your traps going to ruin my expensive uh, scientific gear and uh on the other hand the marine patrol is willing to haul those people's gear and, and charge them you know um, uh, tensions are high right now i got i got a i got a 
get in here on this. Um, and then uh, because that article is full of misinformation, um, the guys that were out there that day, from what I've heard from fishermen, were trying to get their gear out of the way. Uh, number one. Number two, the vessel itself and the DMR said this on a Zoom meeting that I was at a couple of days after the event. Um, in fact, Pat, Pat, the head of the DMR said this, the vessel was off course. It was not following the track. So that was another problem. So that's a huge, um, a huge thing that, you know, a huge difference in that story right there. But I want to get back to wind power in general. Um, wind power, I don't know how many of you are aware that Maine right now is the number six state in the country in wind power. Um, oh. None of it, none of it's, yeah, none of it's on the water. But and and also, eighty percent of our power is coming from renewable resources. Uh, a lot of it's hydropower. But anyway, it's interesting to note that too. Um, so I would like to like list very quickly and shut me off if it goes too long, but the reasons I'm opposed to it and I, I am, I, I, I'm opposed to offshore wind. I'm not opposed at all to, to green energy or to wind power either, but offshore wind. Um, and I just, I'm going to just take some highlight points from an article that I wrote. They threaten the economic health and cultural fabric and the history of Maine. And obviously I'm talking about the fishing communities. They pose a serious hazard to navigation. They pose a threat to endangered right whales. They pose a threat to migrating birds. They pose a threat to marine corals and bottom dwelling sea life. They contribute to warming ocean waters. And then I asked some questions. Is it really green energy? Will it really provide affordable energy? It's a big question. Could it pose a threat to national security? It's a little bit out of the box question, but if you think about it, those things are sitting ducks out there. Um, is the technology already a dinosaur? And ask yourself, why are we trying to capture wind offshore? Um, the, the meetings that I'm in attending, and there's, there's been a one or two every, uh, I would say one, one a week anyway. And the last one I was on had to do with um, wildlife. And there was a huge concern from scientists and environmentalists, um, particularly about birds, but also about marine mammals. And every single one of them said, we need a baseline. So I'm getting back to what Zach said. We need a baseline before we go ahead with this project. If we don't have baseline information, we can't tell you what effect this is having. And so these people are all, you know, I mean that, yeah, we should have a baseline. Doesn't that make sense to you? Perfect um, point, yeah. I said the same thing, Jack, when Angus King started those those meetings with the committees that he that he had before he became a senator. If you remember, he was very interested in the wind, and they started they put together these these groups uh, uh, meetings to discuss wind. 
and and I asked what you know why aren't we surveying the ocean for to, to determine where um, fishing whales and wildlife are right now? If you want to do this in ten, that was that was ten years ago, you yeah. know. And they, the, you know, uh, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, we there, there's also the more you study it, and I I, I get information from people they, they they've read an article that I wrote and they send me stuff, but. There's real questions about the ability of our grid to handle um, wind power. And well, I understand that from Belfast, uh, I think most of you know who Front Street Shipyard is, they wanted to put in solar power and found out that CMP can't handle solar power. They've got 2% left exactly. and it would cost them a billion dollars to upgrade the system. Exactly, exactly. And I just read in today's or this week's Ellsworth paper, there are, I can't, I, I meant to bring the article up, but there are many, many um, solar projects that are being proposed and they're asking, you know, how do we do this? And, and they're not ready for it. Um, you, would, you would need an incredible, I mean, an unbelievable amount of batteries, which we don't have. Um, and and new lines to to accept this power. So it's there's so many questions around this. The cost um, is that's everybody. It's coming out of everybody's pocket one way or the other eventually. Um, so I, more questions than there are answers. That's for damn sure. One of my best friends started a wind power company 20 years ago out west. He's based in Colorado. And they have wind all through the West, um, uh, Colorado, uh, the, uh, Wyoming, Texas. And he said, the biggest problem is the grid. We, could, we have a huge amount of wind. This is a, a tunnel of wind that comes through this area. We can't get it east. We need to, get, we need to be able to, to you know, get this, the, the energy that we have uh, to Chicago and, and onward from there, you know, where most of the use is. And, and uh, you know, so it goes right back to what you're saying about the grid, you know. Mm -hmm. And now we're also fussing locally now about power line construction, the energy corridor, so to speak, uh, you know, it's all connected. Yeah, um, one of the, um, I think uh, just, it hit my mind that I think it was uh, last weekend, the Bangor paper had that article about, you know, wind power could provide all of all the power we needed for the state by 2050. I think that was what the headline said, but they forget to mention solar, um, which could, I'm sure could do the same thing um, and, and other options. So anyway, that that's that's all I got to say. I can hear Giffy Fool now saying, "What's the problem with tidal power?" <laughs> all for it. All for Never it. Never happened to that one down in energy. East. Beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. What happened to the one in Eastport? You never heard anything uh, after they put it in the water. And a year later, there's been nothing. There's, I've never heard anything where even when I'm down there. No, they moved to Portland. I don't know what happened either. I tried to call them a couple of months ago and they never responded to my calls. Maybe there's, uh, maybe there's a reason. Yeah, maybe. 
Mm. <laughs> well, it's nice talking to you guys tonight. Yeah, this has been good. Um, oh, it's gone now. <laughs> Getting old. <laughs> thank you, Mike and Alan and everybody. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Thank you. Yes, yes, indeed. I listen to your show all the time. Love the blues. Love the reggae. Yeah. Uh, all that yeah. stuff. Listen to you. Yeah. Are you yeah. a supporter? Will remain a supporter. But. So before we leave, and, Jack, and, um, mm -hmm. um, go. Uh, somebody would like to read the article that you wrote. How, how do they see that? Oh, I've, I've written a number of articles. I, this is the first year. First year in more than 25 years, I haven't been able to coach basketball in the winter, so I've been writing. But um, so I've there in the last Ellsworth paper, there's an article about right whales. Um, the wind article that you might find was in National Fisherman. Uh, a lot of the coastal papers carried it. Um, you know, Machias, I don't know what it's called, Machias Time. There's there's a whole, they're out there. You can find them. Probably Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the thing about today's world, it's, it's things just travel on their own. You just have no no idea. Um, you put something out there, and the next thing you know, everybody's looking at it. So That's Zach Cliver and Jack Merrill winding up another Boat Talk. Thank you, gentlemen. Don't forget about the Zoom Boat Talk one week from now. Mike, John, and I will be Boat Talk Zooming, and we'd like you to join us. It'll be a hell of a good time. It'll be 4 o'clock Tuesday, April 20th, for 40 minutes. Email boattalk at gmail.com in advance to join the Zoom list. Stay safe.